You're listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action. Thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Hi everyone, welcome to Certified Canada's Class Actions Podcast and we are here today with Janet Walker and Barry Glassball and we'll be discussing jurisdiction and conflicts of law. So Janet Walker is a distinguished research professor at Osgoode Hall Law School teaching private international law, international commercial arbitration and class actions. She's also a chartered arbitrator with offices around the world. Barry Glassball is an experienced class action lawyer who has been counsel on more than 70 class actions. So got very uh, two very distinguished guests with us today. Thank you, Janet. Thank you, Barry, for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you. Delighted to be here, Suzanne. Great. So uh, let me just ask you first a little bit about yourself. So um, Janet, perhaps let's go with you first. Uh, tell me how uh, you came to be interested in class actions, what your experience is, uh, and what you're working on now. Uh, well, when I went into teaching in uh, the mid-90s, uh, I had come, in fact, from uh, a law firm, and uh, class actions were uh, the exciting new uh, thing. And uh, I worked uh, with uh, one of the more senior members of the firm on a chapter on uh, this new concept of class proceedings uh, in securities litigation. And uh, when I went into teaching, I one of the things that I taught was procedure. And for me, the fascinating thing about class actions was that having taught uh, all of the core principles and procedural values uh, relating to uh, uh, named party litigation, class actions uh, stood all that on its head mm-hmm. and asked us to rethink the whole process. Mm-hmm. Uh, Barry, how about you? So I started uh, class actions in 1993. My first case was with uh, Bill Carter. Uh, we were uh, defending uh, silicone breast implants for Bristol Myers. And that uh, led to the first multi-provincial class action settlement in Canada that was discussed by Mike Eitzenga in your first mm-hmm. uh, podcast. So that was my start, and and I just carried on. I became the, the class action lawyer at the firm. Uh, so, Janet, can you tell us a bit more about how you found that class action stands civil procedure on its head? I'm just interested in hearing a bit more about that. Well, everything has changed. Uh, the relationship between, uh, at least in the case of class counsel, between uh, the client and the and the the lawyer is completely different. Uh, the uh, obligations uh, of the court in uh, uh, in respect of the interests of the parties uh, is uh, completely different. Uh, uh, let me see the uh, the need uh, for there to be oversight uh, in. Uh, Discontinuing a class or in settling a class uh, again is uh, completely different. So party choice, uh, party autonomy is uh, vastly different in class actions. Great, and you're working on your, one of your uh, main areas now is arbitration, right? You're a, a chartered arbitrator. You work around the world, or at least virtually these days. So uh, why don't we start with um, the arbitration clause piece? So what do you think, Janet, of the Supreme Court of Canada's uh, approach to arbitration clauses in the recent Uber and Heller case? Uh, well, indeed. Um, uh, when I read the decision, I uh, first wanted to cheer 
then I wanted to cry and then I wanted to fear again. And that's not that's not reflective of the different uh, decisions in the in the case. It was just uh, reflective of the uh, uh, different uh, uh, outcomes and reasoning uh, that ran uh, throughout the, the the case. And in fact, um, as I've said to a number of people, this case will be spoken about at length by uh, uh, commercial lawyers when they're talking about unreasonableness, uh, by uh, procedural lawyers when they're speaking about access to justice, uh, by employment lawyers, certainly uh, for the outcome in the case, um, and certainly by international commercial arbitration uh, lawyers. And uh, so I wrote, I have written a piece um, just now, which will come out in the next few weeks in uh, the uh, most widely published arbitration uh, journal, uh, which goes to, um, I think, 16,000 people around the world from the perspective of international commercial arbitration. And so mm -hmm. that's been my take on it, although I've also spoken about it in class actions. What do I think? I think the result is uh, wonderful. Uh, international commercial arbitration is uh, not intended to be a means of defeating access to justice for uh, people like Uber drivers. And uh, uh, it really uh, uh, sort of frustrates me when I see uh, clever lawyers uh, designing what are essentially class action waivers uh, in the form of international commercial arbitration and thereby baiting the international commercial arbitration community sort of to come to the rescue of international commercial arbitration as if it's uh, as if it's uh, sort of reputation is at stake if the court uh, decides uh, wrongly. Um, so outcome in the court, uh, fantastic. Uh, I, I, you know, as erudite and very impressively so, as was Justice Coste's uh, dissenting uh, decision, uh, I think rewriting the clause is not uh, uh, really what we're after. Um, uh, as uh, very uh, helpful as was Justice Bell and Justice Brown's uh, decisions uh, in saying uh, saying uh, no means no uh, to these kinds of clauses, uh, it would, I think, have been uh, very helpful if they'd described those uh, in terms that would have assisted uh, uh, international commercial arbitration law, um, such as I suggest in the uh, article as using the concept of arbitrability rather than uh, these broad and amorphous concepts of unconscionability mm. um, that I think would have the risk of uh, creating a situation where commercial parties who are properly uh, subject to those clauses, having agreed to them, uh, would then want to come to courts and uh, complain to courts about you know, how they'd uh, made a, an unfortunate uh, mistake in their bargain. Um, that will not help arbitration. It certainly will not help the people uh, like Uber drivers who really need to be uh, not caught up in these individualized proceedings that provide no precedent. Mm -hmm. How about you, Barry? What are your thoughts on Uber and Heller? Yeah, so if, if an arbitration provision doesn't give a practical or a local access to justice, it's going to be hard to enforce uh, to preclude a, a class action. So here the, the arbitration uh, provision was tethered in a jurisdiction other than where the activities at issue took place, like in Amsterdam. So that's just generally not going to be enforced uh, other than perhaps uh, uh, when you have commercial entities involved as Janet really mentioned. So the provision here wasn't even close to being reasonable in terms of the forum and the cost. And I guess it's interesting because that resulted in an expansion of the unconscionability doctrine 
and, uh, and and that expansion obviously is that you just need an inequality of position and an improvident bargain to to raise an unconscionability issue. So that could be argued in a lot of cases, mm-hmm. and it raises the question of whether that in itself can create a new cottage industry in class actions. Uh, inequality of position may be hard to do as a common issue, but it may well be that this unconscionability approach is is uh, is now pursued as a as a new class action. Uh, a way of framing a class action because a waiver of tort has bit the dust mm-hmm. and uh, it may give a new approach, but it's a bad, it was a bad fact case. Mm. Okay. So uh, we're also here to talk about um, uh, jurisdiction and conflict of law. So let's, let's talk about the, um, the, the constitutionality of national class actions. Now that's been a subject of debate in previous years, but it seems to have, settled down now and most people don't really seem to think it's a big issue um i mean most of the provincial class proceeding statutes state that in certain circumstances courts can take jurisdiction over class members in other provinces so barry i'm curious about your answer to this question because it seemed to amuse you when we were uh, back and forth on email do you think the debate surrounding the constitutionality of national class actions is dead yeah, well, I found that funny because uh, I think it's just at the early stages. There are a lot of different fact patterns. Mm-hmm. And uh, so so national class actions clearly have a role because I sure hope they have a role. We've settled innumerable national class actions, and I'm assuming that they're enforceable. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- there, there are some cases where, where national class action is obvious. If a defendant has a headquarters in Ontario or in Quebec, they generally can be sued there uh, by plaintiffs elsewhere. So the the problem is is when you have different facts where the defendant and the plaintiffs are not based uh, where you're trying to sue. And uh, so anyway, there's a role for national class actions, but sometimes uh, the envelope is pushed a bit. Uh, there are cases where the plaintiff should be required to sue where the the alleged wrongful activity uh, took place. I had a, a bit of a tragic case that was framed as a class action. It was an ATV accident that occurred in Alberta, and, but the family of the deceased decided to sue in Ontario as a class action because it seemed like a more favorable forum. Uh, to protect the client on contribution claims and limitation defenses, the client had no choice but to actually do a counterclaim against the family in Alberta and force the case there essentially through through a form of anti-suit injunction just because it, w- there was, it was not appropriate for the case to be advanced as a national class action in Ontario. So they're, they're just very different fact situations. The constitutionality of national class actions remains a huge issue, both from adjudicative jurisdiction perspective and from a legislative jurisdiction perspective. So, Janet, what are your thoughts on that? Cause I'm, I have a feeling you might disagree, but uh, give us your thoughts. I mean, so the question is, um, is the debate surrounding national constitutionality of national class actions dead? Well, um, uh 
was it ever alive? That was sort of the waiver of tort question. Was waiver of tort ever alive? Um, are we going to get a court that firmly puts it to bed? Very difficult. Um, Barry's absolutely right. There are cross-border issues in class actions that are of a variety of sorts. Uh, the ordinary principles of uh, judicial jurisdiction apply to the named parties in the action. They apply to the representative plaintiff. They apply to the uh, defendant. Uh, so there's nothing new there or special about uh, national classes. The only real issue is about the um, absent uh, class members, the, the class members who are not individually named in the proceeding. And uh, that's uh, an issue uh, that really uh, comes up only when a another class is begun in a class action or another individual action is begun by a person who might be caught within the class in a different court. Mm -hmm. And the question is, will that court shut that action down because it recognizes the jurisdiction of the original class action? That's what uh, the new legislation is trying to do. Um, way back uh, in the day, I think it was 2004, we started the task force for the CBA. And one thing I suggested that I actually borrowed from Israel would be uh, was a registry, which would give uh, people notice of the class actions that are uh, being commenced uh, so that there would be some way of uh, courts addressing that multiplicity of uh, or potential multiplicity in parallel uh, actions that would go on in different uh, jurisdictions, at least within Canada. That seems to be you know, belatedly coming on stream, uh, not just as an initiative of the CBA now, but um, also as part of the legislation uh, in various places. Uh, and the new um, and similarly, out of those recommendations that uh, uh, we developed at the ULCC uh, task force, mm -hmm. uh, Saskatchewan first uh, adopted them, but uh, Ontario, I think, is adopting a, a, a sort of more recent version. And the idea is uh, simply that the best and uh, most uh, confident way of addressing uh, the, if you will, constitutional issues that could arise um, is through uh, what amounts to a uh, a carriage action uh, that is uh, given sort of respect uh, in the alternate fora in which the matter could be commenced. It's it's a practical problem. Mm -hmm. uh, it would be ideally solved by some version of a multi-district litigation panel if the uh, Canadian Judicial Council uh, decided to uh, move forward with that. Uh, it, the time wasn't right, it seems, uh, a number of years ago, but now that more uh, provinces are becoming comfortable with the idea of multi-jurisdiction class actions. And now uh, that uh, there has been sort of a greater familiarity with them, it may well be uh, time to revisit that uh, again. Such a panel would um, uh, sort of take on board uh, the potential issues of parallel uh, class actions within Canada. And uh, uh, if you will, uh, um, stay uh, the alternate proceedings and grant carriage to one of them. Um, uh, it remains to see whether that initiative might go forward, but I think that that is the way forward with this. It's not a yes or no, can a court decide? A court can uh, exercise its jurisdiction if it chooses to. It's whether the other courts will uh, have respect for that exercise of jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. But surely some kind of national body deciding carriage and uh, deciding which of various national class actions should go ahead would run into the same constitutional issues that, say, the securities regulator or the proposed securities regulator well, ran into. 
Well, you, you might think so, but in the U.S., uh, the multi-district litigation panel actually uh, was formed out of uh, the uh, various uh, the various districts within the U.S. Uh, federal courts with uh, federal court judges within the U.S. getting together and deciding that that would be the best thing to do. Um, I did have a you know very uh, a small synopsis of a suggestion for the way forward um, in an, a piece that I wrote a long time ago in which I suggested that it would be for the uh, representatives of the courts across the country, for example, the chief justices, um, to establish a collective panel in which there were representatives of each of the courts on that uh, court and mm -hmm. provided that there were uh, members of the court on that panel uh, when carriage was being decided uh, for uh, for the uh, various provinces in which the alternate uh, class actions were being proposed, uh, they could agree then um, as to the uh, forum that would be uh, in which the case would be uh, advanced, and they could implement uh, in a pro forma way stays uh, of the proceedings that were commenced in their courts. There would be no sort of jurisdictional impediment to them doing that. Uh, Chief Justice or a justice from a court uh, in Ontario, for example, can stay a proceeding in Ontario with mm -hmm. no with no constitutional issue arising. Okay. So Barry, you were talking earlier about certain cases that are not appropriate for national class action treatment. I mean, what, what, what do you think is the sort of general rule or general restriction that should be placed on national class actions? Well, I'm not sure there should be any general restriction it, it really depends on uh, the circumstances but you can place cases on a spectrum so uh, if you have a personal injury case a pretty serious personal injury cases those are more provincial mm -hmm. than than federal and because you're then going to have uh, serious issues on contribution and you're going to have local statutes that are are pretty important uh, you compare that to economic loss cases, which uh, a national class generally makes more sense. Uh, if you have a large individual losses, that makes it likely more provincial as opposed to uh, small uh, losses, which makes a national class make more sense. If a, if a case is uh, anchored in provincial legislation, if provincial legislation is very important, uh, that may be a more more provincial type of case. Uh, is the case being advanced where the defendant is or where the plaintiff is or where neither of them are? Mm -hmm. And as Janet mentioned, the, the absent class member is, is a problem. Uh, if governmental claims, if, it, if, it's a, if it's a government, if it's the government advancing the claim, generally they should be advanced in their home jurisdiction as opposed to the government trying to advance claims in another province. So you just have to look at the, the particular facts of the case. Um, many, many cases can be done as national classes. It's, it's more of the exception where you could say this needs to be broken down uh, into province or provinces. There's also the question of whether uh, certain issues in a class action can be decided in one province and uh, other issues or certain issues be decided nationally and other parts of the claim be decided provincially hmm. through the the uh, CGIPTA, uh, the, through transfer of the proceeding. Mm -hmm. So one could imagine a national class on a common issue and then the individual issues of contribution or uh, causation 
going uh, provincial. Uh, so there, there's a role for both. Uh, that uh, the transfer of issues is uh, there, there. There are a few examples of it in, in uh, at least in a non-class action context. But that may be uh, in part a way forward. Um, to, to have, have the issue stayed in certain provinces until the common issues are resolved in another province, for example. Mm-hmm. And then what are your thoughts about jurisdiction over international class members or other countries' jurisdiction over Canadian class members? What are the issues with, with those kinds of actions? Barry, stop. Okay, well, uh, generally, I think there's not been a very serious issue about other countries taking jurisdiction over Canadians. It's really Canada that's had a bit of the long arm here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, the um, the Area Brands case, they used a real and substantial connection test to bring in absent class members. But it's a unique case in that it's uh, not only was it an economic loss cases case, but Many of the foreign defendants had already settled the case. There are peculiar facts to that. but And so there are going to be cases where the absent class members should not be brought into a Canadian class action. But there's some uh, where it does make sense. So it really depends on the uh, circumstances. Uh, we, we are seeing Canadian courts... Uh, uh, proceeding uh, in cases where all or most of the activity took out place outside Canada. So, for example, the uh, the Nevson case. Mm-hmm. And uh, that then turns into a question of how you plead a, a, the, the case. Uh, there's an old UK case, CAPE, yes. uh, where if you plead that the uh, head office did the harm... Uh, let's say in British Columbia, even though the harm actually took place in in Africa, uh, I don't have a problem with that case uh, proceeding uh, in in Canada um, if if it's focus if the pleading is focused to what happened in Canada to at least some degree. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there there are cases. Uh, this is at the cutting edge of of the degree to which Canadian courts are going to take uh, jurisdiction. But uh, generally speaking, uh, they will proceed if you can if you can paint a real and substantial connection with Canada. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the, the sort of up to date English jurisprudence on that is the Vedanta case that came out I think a year or two ago, where they the the facts, the the facts took place, you know, in the head office, and they were held to be responsible for their subsidiary in, I think it was Zaire or Zimbabwe or something like that. So, uh, it's that same kind of trying to paint the facts as, uh, or trying to frame the facts as if they were the decisions were taking in a head office, etc., in the jurisdiction that you're bringing the case in. Um, and so, uh, Janet, what are your thoughts about that? Do, do you do you think there are problems with taking jurisdiction over international class members? Uh, well, two points. Uh, the first is that uh, the cross-border or private international law issues uh, um, are often uh, driven uh, in class actions and made very prominent in class actions where they wouldn't necessarily be in uh, um, individual actions. And yet in some cases, like Vedanta, like uh, Nevson, 
like Buzari. They are the very same issues that you would have in named party litigation. So it's not really, um, uh, uh, these are not really special to class actions. As I mentioned earlier, the jurisdictional issues may arise in any event, but they really only become uh, distinctive for class actions when we're talking about uh, jurisdiction over the absent class members. So th there's sort of a, a, a bit of a, 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 an adjustment in thought needed to be made there where all of a sudden issues that are kind of a, around and out there in private international law become very prominent through class actions. So that's, that's one uh, a point. But the second point on international classes is that it's a little bit like the situation we had in Canada in uh, sort of the late 90s um, in that uh, where you have uh, a series of uh, possible jurisdictions for actions to take place and very few, if any of them, actually have class action regimes, you're, it's, it's going to be quite rare for you to find a situation where there will be an alternate forum in which a, an absent class member might go, either as a class member or as an individual litigant, to try to get uh, recovery and then to test the question of jurisdiction based on what the courts in that place will say. So in many of the international class actions, there isn't really an alternate place to go. Um, uh, in in Nefsen, um, uh, there's uh, you know, a, the very special sort of claim to jurisdiction in Canada in that they can't go uh, to the place uh, where uh, they actually suffered the harm or it's very unlikely that they could have a successful action uh, brought there. So those issues in international classes lie out there as, um, dare I say it, academic uh, issues, mm. uh, not practical issues, except uh, where we're dealing with Canada US and especially in securities litigation. So that's where we've seen a lot of the development in, uh, in these issues cross border when we're speaking about international cases. It has been in securities litigation. And in those cases, uh, you know, we've had a, a lot of them uh, live and Barry will be familiar with them, uh, uh, Briex, others, mm -hmm. in which uh, uh, Canada, Canadian and US courts have uh, done their best to do a little bit of a dance to see, you know, if they can uh, create a coherent result uh, without just uh, both racing ahead and purporting to overlap one another uh, in what they're in the way their decisions are, are made. Okay, so then that, that sort of leads us into uh, somewhat into the form non-convenience question. So, you know, even if obviously, even if courts take jurisdiction, they can decide not to exercise that jurisdiction in favor of another forum. So where does that play into where international class members are involved? Barry, I'll put that to you. Um, well, so to, to win a forum non-convenience motion, you have to show a, a clearly more appropriate forum and that is generally difficult to do. Um, you're like our courts are not going to defer to another court unless there's another court where you can clearly get justice in some form. Like and and there are lots of cases as Janet's already mentioned where that's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So in, in class action practice, forum non-convenience is not our biggest point. Uh, it really is it's a difficult motion to bring. You're usually not going to be able to bring that motion uh, prior to certification. So jurisdiction motion, you, you have to try to bring it prior to, to certification. Uh, but a form non-convenience motion is usually going to be going to be deferred. 
to, to class certification motion because it raises the question of who's the class and, and what's how you actually framing this class action. So I, yeah, form non-convenience has not been a huge part of, of our class action practice. Uh, is there a clearly more appropriate forum? Uh, maybe for for some part of a case, as Janet mentioned, the securities cases, some part of it maybe should be in U.S., but generally speaking, not going to be the the biggest class action issue. Mm-hmm. And so, Janet, do you do you think it's fair to say that in the in the human rights class actions, things like uh, uh, things like Nevson and cases like that, that the court is generally going to say, well, um, you know. Uh, they're going to look at countries with perhaps less developed judicial systems like Eritrea or Bangladesh or Zimbabwe or places like that and say, well, you know, they're just not going to get justice there. These people are just not going to get justice there. So for access to justice purposes on a practical level, we really have to stick with Canada. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, in the human rights cases, um, I mean, we saw ages ago cases like... um, Connolly and Lubin, the um, what used to be the House of Lords, uh, um, you know, and now sort of thinking ahead to Vedanta, where the courts are uh, concerned that there is a meritorious claim and there is a defendant that might be available in the jurisdiction, and that the plaintiffs are not going to get uh, be able to get uh, access to justice and a, and a uh, sort of practical. Uh, ability to bring forward their claim in the place where they uh, suffered the harm. What will happen in Nevson, uh, you know, remains to be uh, seen. Um, uh, but that's, I think, also got to be paired with this uh, question of uh, which legal regime applies and, uh, you know, whether there is going to be um, uh, cognizance uh, taken of uh, the uh, kind of uh, liability and recovery in the place where the harm occurred, which is our uh, standard approach to tort liability. Mm-hmm. So those are sort of com- you know complex issues. But in form non-convenience, I think, uh, frankly, with um, securities litigation, Canada, U.S., um, it may, in some cases, they may not have been styled as form non-convenience per se, but they really are um, efforts to accommodate uh, where the case can get best go forward and possibly, as Barry suggested, where part of the case can best go forward. And these have gone a, a long way back, once upon a time, uh, uh, in the YBM Magnix case, which is a very old uh, a case, uh, I was asked about uh, forum non-conveniences, you know, to give a, a, an expert's uh, view on it. Um, and the, the assertion there was that uh, since um, the uh, sort of uh, folks had been based in the in Canada, and the uh, a lot of the the uh, trades were done in Canada, and it was really a securities matter in Canada that it should go forward in Canada, and should be um, there should be a stay granted to the uh, U.S. proceedings. Uh, the uh, plaintiffs said, no, 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 that's not uh, right. There are strong connections. I think it was Northern District of, pa- of Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken. There are strong connections to the U.S. And by the way, they said. Um, uh, Canada doesn't have fraud on the market, and so we're not going to be able to get our claim up and running. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is how long ago it was, and and the question that was put to me was, would Canadian courts be offended if uh, uh, you know plaintiffs in Canada got a a better sort of run at uh, 
at uh, recovery by being allowed to to uh, you know proceed in the U.S. And I said I I can't see Canadian courts being offended. Um, but now, nonetheless, uh, the U.S. court uh, declined uh, or granted a stay based on grounds of what they described as comedy. And so there is a, a certain recognition that's happening in securities litigation of, you know, where uh, that, that a securities claim uh, is fundamentally going to be located on a particular legal regime that has certain statutes, uh, statutes of limitation, certain uh, reach in terms of uh, defendants and, and so on. And that, uh, you know, if the trades haven't taken place and the, re the relevant trades haven't taken place in that jurisdiction, it might not be uh, a convenient forum, or at least two alternate fora should uh, wait the result in one uh, before they proceed in the other. Mm -hmm. Okay, so uh, you you mentioned uh, the laws of the different places, you know, conflicts of law. Which law do we apply to the class proceeding? Um, so where do uh, Barry? I'll put this to you first. Where do conflicts of law issues arise in class proceedings? Uh, and do they tend to arise more in international class actions or is it more inter interprovincial class actions that they arise in? Uh, well, they arise in both. And so what we're really talking about is, is choice of law. And so, so one has to split that down into the procedural law and the substantive law. Mm -hmm. And so now, for example, that Ontario has amended the Class Proceedings uh, Act one has to think about where you're going to bring your case because it's the forum court that decides the procedural law and, or, or the forum, forum law, forum procedural law applies in the forum. So in, in, whether it's an interprovincial case or, or an international case, you've definitely got to think about where you're going to start your case in terms of, of which class proceedings law is going to apply. And the, the same... Uh, uh, applies to substantive law, but in international cases, you're likely to get, or you may get, a greater divergence in the substantive law. And so uh, limitation periods are an, ex are an obvious example, because after Tollefson, limitation periods in Canada are substantive uh, mm -hmm. law. And so... Uh, I, I had some early involvement in the Rana Plaza case where this came up and uh, not yet another tragic case. But the issue was uh, which law applies to this uh, uh, terrible event that happened in Bangladesh. Under Ontario uh, choice of law rules, it's Bangladesh law. And under Bangladesh law, there was a one-year limitation period. Mm -hmm. And under Bangladesh law, the duty of care analysis is different than we would do in Ontario. And so this was a, a prime case of where one uh, could bring, and, and it's efficient to bring, a preliminary motion uh, for declaration, essentially, that the one-year limitation period applied and the case uh, is statute-barred. Leave aside all the other issues that were involved. Uh, and that's exactly what happened. And, and the courts decided that the case was out of time. 
and that there was no duty for vicarious liability under Bangladesh law as pleaded. So, so uh, unlike the foreign nonconvenience, uh, which is difficult to do at the outset, it may be, for example, in an international class action, you may have a, a substantive choice of law point that can be brought forward uh, at the beginning. You need expert evidence. There was conf- there was competing expert evidence uh, that the courts had to uh, decide. And uh, anyway, the choice the the choice of law issues are are crucial uh, in some cases. In in uh, in many cases, they just don't arise to the same degree, but. Uh, uh, yeah, as they say, the substantive issues more likely to come up in an international class action. Mm-hmm. Janet, where have you seen that come up in your experience? Um, well, I think Barry's absolutely right on this. The, the claim is the claim um, of uh, um, each and every class member, and uh, where that claim has arisen in a different place, for example, uh, governed by a different law, there may be uh, a limitation uh, issue or there may be some other dispositive uh, motion that would uh, prevent that claim from going forward. And it, it can't become uh, viable and overcome those uh, restrictions uh, simply by being aggregated with other claims. So, I mean, back in the day, uh, uh, Barry's absolutely right about limitations issues. I think it was Pearson and Bolladin was a securities claim in which... Um, uh, uh, a number of provinces, it was a national class action, and a number of provinces had uh, uh, limitations in their Securities Act that had already passed. And so it was uh, clear uh, to the court that uh, those uh, whose trades had taken place in those various provinces, again, not the place of their residence and you know not uh, any other connection, but the place where those trades had taken place, to the extent that that was the governing law um, of those uh, claims, uh, they couldn't go forward. Uh, more recently, there was kind of an interesting um, development in uh, uh, the Valiant litigation as everyone uh, awaited the outcome of uh, the Hercules decision at the Supreme Court of Canada, mm-hmm. where uh, two claims going forward uh, in uh, Ontario, one in Ontario, one in Quebec, and uh, uh, you know, of course, they each want carriage over both claims uh, council, the council teams uh, in the respective places. Uh, and suddenly uh, the uh, light uh, went on and it became clear that uh, the approach to uh, this kind of liability for misrepresentations in Quebec, uh, based on uh, the concept of fault uh, in the Quebec Civil Code, uh, uh, potentially provided for uh, greater access to the secondary defendants, accountants, and uh, and others. And uh, as a result of that, um, uh, class counsel decided it was better to join forces uh, and for them both to proceed in Quebec in hopes that uh, uh, any limitations that might have otherwise applied under uh, Ontario uh, law, you know, duty of care limitations uh, or restrictions, uh, wouldn't apply. So these are actually um, uh, real opportunities for those who, uh, for those, for many to become uh, great lovers of choice of law issues, because there may be opportunities, but there also may be restrictions. Uh, Barry's right that uh, some of the jurisdictional issues are less uh, inevitable, 
but the choice of law issues are, are kind of hardwired into the claims and so they're not readily avoidable. Mm-hmm. Um, what will happen more generally in cross-border uh, cases I think is uh, that courts will be having a careful eye to uh, situations in which it's appropriate for example to create subclasses for those whose claims are different because they arise in a different jurisdiction um, um, and alternatively uh, to situations in which the the claim is just not uh, readily managed in a single proceeding and so there need to be separate class actions in different places. Mm-hmm. So what sort of principles do courts rely upon Janet when uh when doing their choice of law analysis. Take us through what the court's thinking is when they're, when they're looking at that issue. Well, it's, it's no different in a way uh, from the uh, individual um, uh, claims. Uh, it depends on which law will govern, and that will vary depending on the nature of the claim. If it's a, um, if it's a tortious claim, uh, we still have the sort of, a, you know, at bottom we have the Tollefson analysis, mm-hmm. uh, which sadly is based on car accidents, which I think are a little bit far afield from some of the claims we're looking mm-hmm. at. But having said that, uh, that that is the case. Uh, securities misrepresentations, whether fraudulent or negligent, are are quite interesting in this regard um, uh, because there's a sort of a, a huge conundrum about whether the um, the law governing that claim should be the law of the place where the uh, um, communication was received and acted upon, which mm-hmm. is you know, old Hedley, Byrne and Heller kind of uh, uh, jurisprudence from England, or whether um, indeed, if you're dealing with a person who's making a representation in a uh, in a regulated profession, whether that the standard of care should be governed by the uh, you know by the um, uh, the sort of uh, place where that representation or the regulation regulated uh, regime under which. Uh, that uh, representation is made. So, for example, for sake of argument, if you're dealing with uh, accountants based in Ontario, you should be looking at uh, the uh, regulations and the standard of care uh, and uh, measure of liability for accountants based in uh, Ontario. That's the the, uh, representation on which you're relying. Mm -hmm. But as to which it ought to be ultimately is... um, is uh, uh, for the court still to determine and uh, it becomes quite complex when you have uh, uh, sort of various classes of claimants from different jurisdictions resident in different jurisdictions that's clear where they made their trades if it's securities uh, again uh, perhaps less clear and perhaps not the same as their own residence uh, so it can be actually quite complicated for the courts uh, to sort out but at, at bottom, it's a basic a choice of law analysis. If it's torts, uh, it's Tollefson and anything else that we've seen since in the specialized sphere, um, for example, for products liability. Um, and if it's uh, contract claims, uh, you know, if it's consumer claims, uh, these will all sort of vary depending on uh, the choice of law rules that apply to those uh, in individual claims, just as in class proceedings. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Thanks. Uh, Barry, do you have anything to add to that? Um, no, I don't think so. The, there's an issue uh, generally that we deal with as to the degree to which you could contract out of provincial statutes and, mm-hmm. and how you deal with that. Uh, but uh, I agree with Janet that it's the usual principles of, of choice of law uh, that should apply in class actions, that class actions shouldn't suddenly create something different 
so, so no, I, I really don't have anything to add. Okay, great. So then I'll, I'll put this to you, Barry. The uh, with the changes brought about by Bill One Sixty One. Do you think defendants are going to be bringing more pre-certification motions on the subjects of uh, jurisdiction and choice of law, obviously where those apply? Yeah. Um, so the first thing I, I would like to say uh, on the amendments is that uh, just viewing it first from the class counsel's perspective, they've they've got to consider because Ontario remains a cost jurisdiction. Are you actually going to bring your case? Mm-hmm in a no cost jurisdiction because there, there are some choices there. And so there, there are huge issues for, in terms of choice of, of their, their jurisdiction or venue. Uh, are you gonna go somewhere that's easier on preferable procedures? So this ties back to national class. If you, if you have a national class type of situation and as class counsel, you can bring it somewhere else you're basically going to be negligent if you haven't thought through all of the options mm-hmm. because Ontario is not, for cases going forward after our October 1st, is not going to be the best choice for some cases. Mm-hmm. The new legislation is regressive. And so so it's, it's going to be huge from the class council perspective. I think we're going to see fewer cases. They're going to be more focused. Uh, so from the defense perspective, we always brought these pre-certification motions on jurisdiction. And, and uh, uh, so, so uh, I, I uh, as with Janet, I was, had the privilege to teach conflict of laws or private international law for some years. And, and so when I was involved in these cases, we would always consider jurisdiction first and make sure you're not submitting to a jurisdiction and bring the motion uh, immediately. Uh, and those jurisdiction motions, most of the time, we were able to have those decided uh, ahead of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I don't think it's going to really make a difference. And as I, as I mentioned, the Rana Plaza case, we also brought a uh, uh, basically a conflict of laws question at the outset. So uh, those motions, uh, uh, which we've always brought, they are encouraged in the new legislation. And the uh, in, uh, the Herniac case that was even mentioned in the ALC case at the Supreme Court of Canada, mm-hmm. courts are to look at an efficient way of proceeding. So uh, the, the motions are going to be brought um, and uh, at an early point. If they can resolve a substantial piece of the litigation or all of it. And so there's a, there's a, uh, this is a bit off topic, but the, there is a very interesting uh, case presently before the British Columbia Court of Appeal in the uh, opioid healthcare a cost recovery case where the two two defendants are based in Quebec, but they're being sued in British Columbia by the BC government. And they're saying if they submit to the BC jurisdiction, for example, by attending a class certification motion, mm-hmm. 
they will lose their enforcement defenses in Quebec. So they're saying BC court shouldn't have jurisdiction over them. This right. is the adjudicative jurisdiction. They undoubtedly will say there's no legislative jurisdiction at some point as well. But th their point is, UBC court, if you take jurisdiction over us, we, we the Quebec court's not going to recognize your uh, your point. The, the BC court says, well, Quebec court, you should, should, should accept that taking jurisdiction shouldn't take away the defenses. But they're saying that's not the way it works. The Quebec court will apply its own rules and they will lose their enforcement defenses in Quebec. So that's going to be decided by the BC Court of Appeal is being briefed at this moment. Mm. And so, so yeah, it's an interesting, uh, going back to your the point you made about conflict of laws issues in interprovincial cases. And, and again, it's a government claim as opposed to a, it's a public claim under a public statute as opposed to a, a private claim. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that works out. So, Janet, do you, do you agree with Barry's take on that? Do you do you think that there are going to be fewer class actions brought in Ontario now that the changes have been made? That it's <laughs> it's just not going to be a, a an ideal jurisdiction to bring a class action in. Uh, well, we may be seeing uh, sort of an increase in the Delaware effect here. Mm. Um, you know, competitive federalism. Uh, it will be interesting uh, to see that. Certainly. Uh, you know, most jurisdiction choice of law uh, motions are brought early and are brought because they are potentially dispositive or would completely reshape the claim. And so I, I agree that to the extent that uh, they would be dispositive, it just, um, you know, it, I, I see it as not terribly helpful for these hugely expensive uh, certification motions to uh, uh, be run uh, through to the end mm -hmm. and sometimes up the lines of appeal only later to have them uh, have the whole case uh, um, come to naught because of a jurisdiction or, or choice of law issue. So I, you know, as as much as sort of a wet blanket for um, the hopes of class counsel, if that's what's ultimately going to happen, it makes good sense for that to happen uh, early. Um, yes, I think we will see uh, Perhaps, who knows, we'll, maybe we'll see branch offices of uh, major uh, class action firms being set up in, in other uh, more favorable uh, jurisdictions. I think we might. And, I, and I'm kind of interested by uh, uh, Barry's um, uh, you know, comment about this, this case. You know, it, it strikes me as just uh, maybe, you know, I haven't read the case, but it strikes me as, as a bit odd that this is sort of uh, a tournament 101 that... Uh, if you show up as a defendant uh, mm. merely for the purpose of challenging jurisdiction, uh, that is not uh, an acceptance of jurisdiction and uh, will not be regarded as such uh, in when you are enforcing the claim. I mean, that that sort of defense, if I call it defense of non-attorment, doesn't apply in many claims in Canada um, on enforcement because uh, we do have that real and substantial connection as a jurisdictional base. And sometimes if there is a real and substantial connection to the forum, even if you didn't attorney, even if you didn't participate, even if you didn't defend, it'll still be enforceable against you. So that's that's maybe what they're saying about the, um, about the jurisdiction of, of the BC courts. But the additional point is um, it's pretty clear in our jurisdictional law that if there is some kind of immunity now, 
I'm not aware of it from a crown immunity standpoint, but certainly from a state immunity standpoint. If there's some kind of uh, state immunity, then uh, a, a government has to waive that explicitly. That's not just going to happen because uh, someone shows up to argue about jurisdiction, for example, um, or some uh, person who doesn't, you know, pro properly represent the government happens to show up and get involved in a case. Uh, so it's far from clear to me that um, that uh, it, it is as simple as uh, might be imagined uh, by the claimants who wish to choose British Columbia. But again, I, it remains to, to read the case. But I definitely agree with Barry on, on all these points. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, Barry, do you have any uh, thoughts to add before we sign off? Uh, I think we've reached the end of our questions. Uh, not really. The the with Bill 161, we've got this dichotomy of regimes, mm -hmm. which is going to be very difficult. So uh, the the new the new uh, statute doesn't apply to pre October one claims. So the the class action judges in Toronto, we obviously have a dedicated team of class action judges, and mm -hmm. that's more or less what they do, and they're very very good at it. Uh, are now going to have to administer two different regimes yeah. uh, and reach potentially different results on the same cases. Will they be trying to reach the same result? Absolutely. Uh, but it's it's a very difficult situation, uh, the, the changes in Ontario, and it's really brought Ontario more out of whack with mm. the rest of country as opposed to less. And and I was hoping uh, that uh, when when it started that there would be more harmonization. There there are examples in the in the legislation that are uh, where harmony is being created, but on the key points, mm -hmm. uh, on the really crucial points about uh, costs, like that just drives where you're going to run a class action, and the preferable procedure point. Uh, so, so it's it's unfortunate in my mind to create a disharmony between the provinces when that really wasn't necessary, mm -hmm. uh, from my perspective. Yeah, Janet, uh, any further thoughts before we uh, call this to a close? Uh, it will remain to be seen uh, what happens with Bill One Six One. The Law Commission of Ontario did uh, a fabulous job in there. Uh, examination of these issues and in their report uh, the legislators had a different uh, uh, a different view uh, but the courts may have a, a different view again and uh, to the extent that they uh, feel it uh, appropriate to interpret uh, the legislation in a way that um, uh, if I dare say rebalances uh, mm -hmm. um, uh, the uh, prospects for class actions in Ontario uh, who knows what may happen uh, with that so it remains to be seen. Okay. Well, uh, I think that's everything for now. Thank you very much, you two, for coming in. Thank you for your time and your insights. And um, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, have a great day. Thank you very much. Thanks, Suzanne. Okay, great thank you. Okay, okay, thanks. Take care. Bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast. Hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins. And the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org. Website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. 
be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify, or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. Till next time, stay safe and stay classy.